Welcome to the show where we interview our network of B2B SaaS experts. In this episode, Hampus Jacobson, co-founder and CEO at Brisk, on why founders must understand where people and computers need to meet. This is the Notion Capital Podcast, hosted by Paul Papadimitriou. Hi, this is Paul, and today I have Hampus with me. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you? So tell me, who are you exactly? Good question. That's the question I ask myself every day. Um, <laughs> I'm an entrepreneur who really enjoys creating things. I, I realized when I was a kid that I'm really good at human engineering, figuring out what people love and what, what triggers people. And I never envisioned myself to become an entrepreneur, and I sort of stumbled into this career, and it's been an amazing way to actually... Because understanding people's people is a great way to be able to design products, to be able to do sales, to be able to do marketing, and everything in an early stage startup is really about understanding what drives people. You have a startup currently called Brisk.io. We'll get there in a bit. But first, I want you to tell us a bit about your history because this is not the first time you've done a startup, right? No, exactly. I started uh, another company in 2001 when I was 22. I started my first company, which was really like completely random. We were six friends. We didn't want to get hired by the big corps. Uh, so we just started, started a company. And then a couple of months into that company, a friend of ours called us and said, we have this huge problem. Can you look into solving it? And I had been working for a consultancy company in London uh, during an internship. And I really, we sort of really, really, we just decided we're not going to be consultants. So we said, we were going to do this as a product. And pretty much fake that we had a product and the company said, sure, you go ahead, you, you sell us that product. And then what was we, the product? <laughs> this, uh, it's sort of super techie because it was in the inside of a mobile phone. So what we did is that we drew everything which uh, drew and structured everything which was on a screen in a mobile phone, which back in the day, like in 2001, 2002 was a huge shift. Like mobile phones went from those, you know, black and white text screens to color screens with vivid graphics and moving graphics. And most of the hardware in the phones and most of the people working with mobile phones were not really ready for that shift. And we had come from like having done that as a hobby for like eight years. So we had an immense amount of background. And this friend of ours that worked at Sony Ericsson asked us to help them out. And we said, sure, let's go ahead. And we started helping them out. And then after a couple of months, we stumbled into Samsung. And then after a couple of another, like after a couple of, I guess, 10 months, we stumbled into Nokia and Motorola and and then eventually stumble into Google, and it just grew out of hand. And we ended up being 108 people and uh, was acquired by BlackBerry for $150 million, which was a completely crazy story. That was in 2010, correct? That was in 2010, exactly, we were acquired. So it was eight years. And it's incredible because a lot of people have asked me uh, like if it was like a break next, next speed. And the crazy thing is, like, I think that the world back then was just a lot slower. I mean, we doubled revenue and employees pretty much every year. Which sounds big, but the thing is, a lot of startups today, which really succeed, they they definitely do that in the beginning. And I think that it was like it never felt as if it was breakneck speed. It, I mean, it felt like you were always just trying to. We were always borderline drowning and just trying to get our head above the water. And if somebody said like, "Where do you think the mobile world is going?" You know, we were invited to a conference talking about where, where mobile phones were going, and we we never had the time to climb up some, some ivory tower and look out and think. So we just sort of said what was on the top of our head and people found that to be extraordinarily wise. And we were like, okay, let's, I want to get back into the mind now again so I can keep working with crunching out great phones, which is very unlike how a lot of companies are built today, like very visionary, very marketing driven. And, and we were very sort of 
craftsmanshipy, sort of very sort of customer focused, delivering value every single day because we didn't have any external capital. You've you've stayed a little bit, I think, at Rim afterwards, and then uh, you left, and now you opened this company called Bristol IO. Is that same spirit with you? Are you still a craftsman? Today? Absolutely a craftsman. I think the world has changed. I mean, capital has gone from immensely expensive to immensely cheap. And I think that, I mean, therefore, Brisk is a venture capital funded company. And instead of being uh, an organically grown company. And it's also, I think that it's the world has changed in the sense that TAT was a company that was built in the embedded world of mobile phone manufacturers. And the deadline of a mobile manufacturer is 12 to 18 months away, where our customers now are extremely high velocity SaaS companies like Hootsuite and Evernote and the kinds of like, you know, the LinkedIn's of the world. And I mean, for these guys, 18 months is so long time that it's crazy. Everything has to be done really, really, really quickly. And that, that is just... Is, is, that, is that, sorry to interrupt you, is that the reason that you went from not getting capital? I mean, besides that capital has become cheaper. Is that why you decided to go for a, a venture capital this time around? Actually, for me, it was kind of simple. Like, when TAT was acquired, I, I worked two years for BlackBerry. And part of those two years is I try to figure out what I want to do with my life. And uh, and I'm really a sucker for learning. So I was really writing down the list of things I don't know and I want to learn. And I really felt that I want to try, I want to learn everything about like how SaaS sales works because I was I really felt I didn't have a clue. I wanted to understand how a venture capital company was built. Like, uh, I mean, we were designed differently at TAT. And I had a couple of thoughts about other things I wanted to, like other metrics I wanted to figure out. And I was just, you know, I wrote down a list during my time at, at RIM and was looking at like, yeah, how do I find these things? And I, I ended up angel investing quite a lot of companies to try to figure out some of them. And then I realized that the only way to learn is like, you have to immerse yourself completely. Angel investing is really, uh, you, you can sit there and watch people play soccer or you can play soccer and get dirty. And you're never, I mean, you don't get to trust the ball as an angel. So I realized that the only way for me to get dirty is actually, you know, go down to the field. So I started another company. And why that company? So tell us a little bit about what does a Brisk IO do? Um, so the idea of Brisk is that the world has changed from a world where people sign million dollar agreements. Like back in my old life, I knew the name of the dog and the spouse of the person that's going to sign the paper. You know, if you sign a million dollar agreement, you, you, you have a lot of time to investigate and think. And the agreement's going to take a long time. And if you're, a, if you're a salesperson, you kind of work with five of those possible agreements at any given time. So you can keep everything in your beautiful moleskin and write with your Mont Blanc pen and everything can be nice. And the world has shifted to a world where SaaS is ruling and, you know, Dropbox is charging you whatever, 500 bucks per month. And if you're a sales rep selling a 500 bucks per month agreement and you have a churn of XYZ, the thing is you have to be working with 50 to 100 customers at any given time. And that means you don't know the name of the spouse. Uh, you don't, you're, you're happy if you know the name of the person and the name of the company and the state, what's happening right now, and the reason they were interested or not interested. And therefore, CRMs have become so much more important. Like CRM is like the data in this room is very important. And that's why 10 years ago, a lot of companies, SaaS companies, were driven by having a lot of data in the CRM. And if you look at 2015, we have a sales stack. The average company today have 15 plus cloud services connected to their sales system. And ideally... All those 15 services inform the sales rep on what to do next. Like if you're going to call somebody, are they using your product? Are they paying for your product? Did they churn? Did they read the white paper? Did they come to the last meeting? What were their objections? How many people do we have from that client? So on and so forth. And the problem is if you have 100 consecutive customers and like four meetings a day, five meetings a day, you don't have the time to go in and check everything on five different tools and 10 different tools and read two different documents. So what Brisk does 
You know, Brisk integrates to these cloud services, the SaaS cloud services, and pulls the data out of these uh, services and tells you what to do next. You're about to go on a call with a person who just went from three users to 15 users, and they're manically using your product, but like nobody's using this feature, which is the key feature you know for triggering them. And now, and they have a webinar scheduled for Thursday, and they have no issues open in Zendesk. They're tweeting positively about your company, and your call is in two, one, now. You said that you've done some investigation before actually starting Bruce.io. You were writing down notes and trying to figure out stuff. But why did you choose that one? I mean, you, you led business dev and sales for TAT before. So is that because you did that that you said, okay, now the world is getting faster. I need a faster tool to be able to tell the name of the spouse of the, of the person I'm talking to. Is that the reason why? The, I mean, the reason was, was uh, twofold. One is that I'm, I was extremely curious about how sales processes actually work and how to implement sales processes. And the other part of it was that one of my biggest headaches at TAT was that I could go into a salesperson's room and say, do you think we're going to, like, what's going to happen with this Nokia project? And if I asked them at 8.30, they were saying, like, I'm not sure. If I asked them at 9, they were saying, yeah, I think it's going to go. And you're like, it's going to fly. And, you know, after a while, I figured that they drink coffee at 8.45. So I was actually just distilling gut feeling. Like, what I was, what I was getting is, is this, is this a good mood or a bad mood right now? And there was very little data in between. So I was really longing for a world where decisions were done upon, based upon data. The problem is that people who work with people are very seldom quants, and the serum is very quantish. So I wished for a world where I had a computer to suck out all the data from a human person, and then the human could focus on being a human. And you know, like if you're on a call with a person and you hear hesitance, only a human can do that. But the problem is that those things that makes us very human and can hear hesitance or can hear positivism, those things are the things that make it hard for us to enter all the details or to log the call or, you know, all the things that kind of quantish people like doing. So I wanted something that just takes all the, the computer of the human and lets people focus on being people. So you had, I guess, to focus as well a lot of the design of the product, because if you want to translate that to human, you have to make a, a design experience that's actually very humanish then, right? Yeah, that's actually exactly. What, and actually, the, the whole journey of how we started Brisk was that we originally started by a completely free product. There was no paid tier. And the whole point was that we're going to prove that we're going to have more than 70% of the users who come in to continue to use this product and love this product. If you roll out a CRM system in a company and you have 70% of you using it like with extremely high frequency, that is considered an immense success. And this was a product that we could not configure because it was a free product. So people used like a, you know, so what happened is that when people installed the free version of Risk, it was a we have a little AI that automatically sets up and try to figure out how people work, and that is the, and that is the free plan. And what happens in the paid plan is that people actually get to design their own flow, which is of course you know immensely more efficient. It's like it, the free version is a toy compared to the to the paid version. Like we have we have companies with who increase their their CRM usage with like two hundred fifty percent, like Intercom. Uh, we have people who've gathered like 84% more data, like Evernote. We have people who've increased conversion with like 20, 30%, like Hootsuite. So like we have immense results, but for the paid version where people actually implement uh, their, their sales process. And this is like, it all came back from, you know, I think people should do what people are best at and computers should do what they are best at. And what I'm really, what I'm really interested as a person is like where we play ball. Like where computers and, and humans need to, like where we need to meet. That's what I'm really interested about. And TAT was a UI company, so that was the same thing. Basically, are the recipes you're telling us about, are they the ones you actually use at Brisk yourself to find customers? The crazy thing, we're users of our product. So it's really funny. 
It's like uh, we hire sales reps and one of the requirements for ourselves is that a sales rep should be up and running in a week and be like fully functional and inputting data as anyone else and they should be knowing what to do next. And they have the first two days of training. So the first two days, they, they go through our sales process, our tools, and install the different tools we use in our sales stack. And they do their first kind of real live calls day three and four. And then day five, they're supposed to be like we have a quick sync, just saying like what's working, what's not working, and then the day like the day after, they're they're supposed to be up and running, and that's working. It's incredibly satisfying that we're hiring people with no sales background. Like the last person we hired was a copywriter. What transpires in what you're telling me, both uh, before at TAT and that period when you were thinking about what to do next, and now at Brisk, is that it's customer, customer, customer. You were trying to prove that you get retention, get prove you get to the customer. So is that something that when you talk to other startups, when you probably maybe mentor other startups with the startups you invested in, is that something is a message you're, you're hammered down all the time? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the worst thing that I, that, that I meet are people that have great ideas that haven't been tested with people. What I'm most impressed as, as a person when I meet uh, founders is when they show me a really but ugly prototype of a product and they tell me an amazing retention metric or amazing usage. It's like that just blows me away i'm like you're looking at something which is it just looks barely functional and they say oh we have 200 like active weekly active users because that means they've found a real pain and solved it and like at the same time i don't know how many times you meet a company and you get to download their test flight app on their on their iphone it's not released yet is there they're working for their product hunt and it's like an immensely polished experience and you, you play with it with like two or three minutes. And after two or three minutes, you're asking like, so what problem are you trying to solve? Like, I guess I'm not the target group or, or I don't really understand it. And they're saying, oh, it allows you to take pictures of exotic food and share with indigenous people. And you're like, okay, cool. So is indigenous people your target group? No, it's everybody who has that interest. They're like, okay, cool. Okay, cool. Uh, it's really nice. I mean, I love your design, but uh, like, uh, I'm not sure I would use the product, but I think it's really beautiful. And instead, I mean, it's, it's never going to fly. They haven't tested with a single real person. So basically, you, 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 your mentor is to tell, find a customer, get feedback for the customer, and test, 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 and really trade who is actually going to pay for a service, right? Yeah, and exactly. And I think pay or use, depending on what the, yeah. at the end of the day your metric the is, is going to yeah. be. But I think, that, I think that a lot of times, people don't understand like the best pitches you ever hear are people like early stage startups. Like when you meet an early stage startup and they say, they, they talk about a human's problem. They, they, they don't show you that they, they, you're supposed, I, I like people who show the product within like a minute or so, but I like people starting by saying, did you know how many podcast recorders spend their day on blah, 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 blah. And you're like, no, I had no clue. We talked to 15 people and this is like top five problems. And you're like, and, and like, when you look at it, you just feel so much angst. Like, okay, so what's the worst problem? What's the worst part of recruiting salespeople? You're like, well, it must be all. Yeah, salespeople are great at selling themselves, so it's hard to recruit them. What happens? Like, how many salespeople do you think, uh, like, uh, uh, what's the attrition of salespeople in, in Silicon Valley? Like, I don't know. And like, it's a third. A third of your salespeople are going to leave. Okay, shoot. <gasps> training. How much is your training cost of an average salesperson? I don't know. How much time do you think I've spent a really brilliant sales enablement people that could be great salespeople? And you're like, you, you feel all this, ang like, you feel angst. You look at it, it's like, this is horrible. This is a horrible situation. Like you're losing, companies are losing a lot of time and, and like a lot of great people are being hired that are like not being trained properly. And then the startup just says, that's what we're solving. And you're like, oh, thank you. Like, oh, thank you. Like, can I see the product too? Instead of just going to pitch more directly and saying like, here's a product. It's like, I think the best pitches, first, you just feel immense pain. You're, you're pitching the problem. Exactly. Who has the problem? 
and what problem is it? And the best pitches are when you actually can get somebody who's not the target group to really empathize with a person and really feel that problem. And then how do you scale that? Uh, how do you scale your, yourself at Brisk? How do you scale you, you in the past? How do you help other startups to scale? Because once you've f- figured out a problem, you still have the sales issue in front of you. Yeah, I think that, um, so I think that the startup has a really clear phase. The first phase is really like distill the problem. When you've distilled the problem, I think deliver uh, a butt ugly duct tape solution to prove that people are going to use it and just measure only only retention. And when you, when you have proven that people are going to use this product, then you can look at like what KPIs are the KPIs of value. Is it, is it data? Is it money? Is it whatever? Like you have a vision of it, but now show you can gather that data or yeah, you, can, you can monetize it that this or that way. And then I think that a lot of startups, when they get to the point where they have, quote unquote, the minimum viable product that they think they can scale, I think that it's, it's so much about getting attention out of this. Like we live, really live in an attention economy. So I think really finding a way where people find you or when you find people, they immediately want to listen to you. And that, that is something where I think a lot of very tech, like really high tech companies fail at. They make an immensely amazing product that solves a really big problem, but you don't, you don't know of it because you can't find it because they're, they're, they're like anywhere on the web page doesn't say and they have, and I think that's the beauty when people make like freemium products or great content marketing and, and, and really sort of makes you follow them. Like, I don't know how many startups follow Intercom without knowing what Intercom is doing, but they're going to stumble in on Intercom's page one day. And it's like, whoa, hey, this is exactly what we need. Like how many people actually knows what, you know, I don't know, IBM actually does or like, you know, the old school companies, like they have no content marketing. They have nothing that sort of, they just have to buy ads and make you, like IBM does everything nowadays. So it doesn't matter. But you see my point. Yeah, obviously. I, I can see that you, you seem to be a very process-driven person. You know, you've, you've taken notes, you've tried to understand the problem, especially that sales funnel. So is that something you also help other companies understand the sales funnel all, through, of course, your product at Brisk, but also in terms of because at the end of the day, like you said, it's a human doing the sales process. Do you, is that something you're passionate about, understanding that sales process, the sales yeah, funnel? Yeah. I'm extremely interested in that, actually, because I think that as a person, I think that I'm extremely interested in marketing and sales. I mean, the thing is, I'm a computer scientist, my master is in artificial intelligence and control theory, but I'm extremely interested in people. The reason I studied AI was I was trying to figure out how to simulate people. The reason I studied control, control theory is I wanted to simulate people. I think it's, it's like I, I'm super interested in how people work and, and how they work, uh, how, how they work and how the inner, inner, inner parts of them works. But I think that at the end of the day, marketing and sales are so interesting things because it's like there's multiple parties. It's like it's so hard to understand what's going on. And I think that, you know, like, Anybody can understand if I, if I take an object, if I, and I, if I take a, a black metal object here and I drop it, you and I can both understand exactly what happens because there's only one object involved. If I now tell you that it's a magnet and I'm putting both of them on the table and I'm pushing the two magnets towards each other and it's going to be like both of us are going to understand what's going to happen, but it's going to hard to exactly foresee it because they're going to affect each other. And now if I put those magnets in a sea of magnets and I push a couple of magnets, it's going to be almost, I mean, mathematically you can't even see what's going to happen. Like you have to calculate each step with differential equations. And that is what the world works of marketing. Like marketing essentially is a world full of magnets and you're pushing these magnets around. It's extremely hard to predict. Sales is two magnets. Sales is like, I'm pushing a magnet. Like you have a problem. I have a solution. Maybe. Let's talk about this. And the cool thing about that is that you can make a lot of theory about it. You can make a lot of process about it. But at the end of the day, it is just as magnets. It's about attraction. There are a lot of human elements. It's about you and like feeling that I'm telling you the truth. It's like, I need to be credible. I need to be very concrete. I need to tell you a story that makes you like follow the thread and listen. 
And I need to create some urgency because you need to feel that it's moment is now. You can't wait with this. And all of those are human elements. And at the same time, you're going to be one of the 10 customers I talked to today. You're going to be one of the 100 customers I touch with emails today, which means that there needs to be a process. And my manager needs to know if he or she is going to fire me or not or help me or coach me. And the problem is my manager coaches 10 people. And my manager's manager have a team of 1,000 salespeople. So this problem scales where, like for my manager's manager, in a sense, there are no humans, humans involved. It's supply chain management, like it's a process. But for the person talking to the human, it's a human-human thing. And I think that is such an extremely fascinating thing, I think. I would add one more question because you say, like you said, uh, a magnet in, in, in our case is a person. So a magnet also has probably, you know, advantages, disadvantages as failures sometimes. And one of the big failures we see, and I, I'm coming back to the point you said about you, when you hire your sales at risk, you are uh, looking at them to be like ready within a week. So uh, productivity, because that's also one of the biggest problems we see at companies. We see people that's sometimes don't really know how to handle their own time. So I'm sure that tools are there to, to help them. But can you tell us a little bit about what you think about productivity? Because that's at the essence of work and probably at the essence of sales as well. So I think that there, there are two parts of that. I think that personally, I, so there are a couple of things. One is like people have an intrinsic motivation, which is like, you know, people care about whatever, money, fame, learning, something. And as a manager, one of your goals is to find that person, find that thing with every person. Like if you care about money, let's incentivize you on money. If you care about fame, less intensive, like learning, so on and so forth. That's one part. And then the second part is like, even if we, people are really emotionally driven and like care about their, their, uh, like their reward, own reward system, people like progress. Like most people, and especially salespeople like progress. I'm not talking about like, you know, making money, essentially, but progress. So one thing I think really works is that just setting up KPIs. You know, if you're supposed to do 50 calls a week, then you just set up 50 calls per week. And you just, you tell yourself, I'm going to do 50 calls. And the thing is, it's not that, you know, you will be fired if you don't do 50 calls. Like, let's say you do 40. Then on Monday, I'm going to chat to you. It's like, do you feel that it's going to be hard to do 50? Because maybe 40 is the right number for you. And like, I'm going to help you like make sure that we figure out the right number. But the thing is, like, if we just let it to be free floating and you go on what you feel like doing, like we all have weak moments. Like at three o'clock, you're kind of like, you know, your blood sugar is low. You're not, yeah, you're, you just gonna, bump, you, yeah. Yeah, like, you're not going to do that thing. So I think that, I mean, for me, just like checklists and like KPIs for an individual are great. And I think those are necessarily not good yardsticks for performance reviews, but they're great uh, ways of helping people to perform, like making, helping people perform in a good way. I mean, making sure that like, if you're the kind of person that does best at 20 calls a week, then that's your thing. If you're a person that instead are immensely fast, but you're only good at qualifying people, let's put you in that role. You can process 100 people per week, but you shouldn't do any closing. You should only qualify and book demos, qualify book demos, because you're great at that. You love that. You think it's, you enjoy it and you're good at it. And I think that's, that's like process by itself is finding people's reward system and figuring it out so you can talk to them about it, finding people's weaknesses and strengths so you can coach them, and then finding a metric for them so they know, like, am I, like, is this week a good week? Is this week a bad week? Is today a good week? I think the best thing is if you wake up in, every morning and you kind of have an urge or a worry, like most founders have this already, like, like, I don't know any SaaS founder doesn't wake up in the morning and like knows their MRR, like, damn, we're at 12K MRR, we got to get 1350, like we need to get there, like how do that, they go to bed thinking, okay, now we're at, you know, 299, how do we get to 1350? And it's like, you have that urge, like on your body, you're just feeling that metric all the time. And that's an amazing way to just like 
strive. You just mentioned the term SaaS founder. Do you make a difference between SaaS founders and other type of founders? Yeah, I think that it's like, I think it's interesting because I think that they're, SaaS founders have some interesting aspects, I would say, because if you're a SaaS founder, like, okay, so some SaaS founders are SaaS founders because of the hype. You know, like, okay, SaaS is the best model, apparently, <laughs> let's, like, you know, let's put the sticker on or a SaaS company. But I think that it's interesting that people that, like, look into SaaS, because SaaS is cash flow-wise pretty stupid, because, like, if you get all the money up front, it's better. But one of the things which is really beautiful about SaaS is SaaS moves the product from being transactional to relational. Like, you sign up for my product. If you dislike it, you can just churn at any given moment, which means I have to deliver value every single moment, which means I have to be a product person, which is the people I like. I think that creating great products is the end goal. I think that if you're great at transactional sales, you can be a marketeer. Like you can be an awesome marketeer. People click buy, they get the product and they go like, hmm, why did I order this? You know, like, you know, Kickstarter campaigns, it's kind of like the Lufthansa catalog. You order some kind of weird pillow that's going to help you sleep. And then you end up going like, what, what did I order this thing? Like, why, you get it like a month later. And it's like, I don't understand. I, why was I drunk on Lufthansa? Yeah, it was an impulse buy. Yeah, of course. Because exactly. the, the process at that up. Yeah. But obviously, being a founder is something like more long lasting. So execution on a more lasting time is actually the one that matters. Exactly. So, and I think the cool thing about SaaS founders too is I think SaaS founders have to be, have to be long term because as you're going to be cash flow negative, probably because that's the name of the game, is that you have to think about how to build a machine, which means that SaaS founders have to be product people, but SaaS founders also have to be recruiters. Like the best SaaS founders have to look at the inside their company and think, what's the biggest bottleneck we have? Because like, which kind of people do we recruit? Uh, because if you recruit people who can sign deals, but the deals aren't renewed, that's the wrong kind of people. So like, like we, have a, we have a small sales team, but we have one person almost dedicated to sales enablement to make sure that the people we hire can perform because we, we know how important that is. Like we don't have sales bonuses per salesperson. We have collective sales bonuses because we want the sales team to be working cooperatively to do things. So you seem to have a very clear vision on how both SaaS world works, how you work, how the sales process work. But you started this, uh, this chat by telling me that when you started TAT, you were faking it. So what's your take on faking it nowadays? Uh, yeah, so, uh, do you think any founder that fakes it is still valid or it's not possible anymore? The thing is, I think it's like this. Like I, I, I really subscribe. There's a really awesome New York Times article, which I totally love, which is what you know when you're 40. And it's like one thing they're mentioning in the article is like when, you're, when, you, when you get older, you realize that everybody's winging it. Somebody's, some people are just doing it more confidently. Um, <laughs> and I think that's so true. I think that I grew up as a fourth child with my older brothers being 8 to 11 years older than I am. I was the youngest kid in the room. Like somebody asked me, do you know how to play Monopoly? Of course I'm going to say, yes, of course I know how to play Monopoly because otherwise I wasn't going to be playing ping Monopoly today. And that's the only way I got to learn Monopoly. And the reason I left BlackBerry was actually the fact that I realized I'm the grown up in the room. Like there were times at BlackBerry when, when somebody asked me something and I realized I knew the answer. I didn't have to wing it. I wasn't stretching. I didn't have to learn. I like, I was considering people to, you know, like I was like, this is like, you're doing it wrong. And I love being like stretching and learning. So the reason I built a SaaS company and not yet another mobile embedded company is because I didn't know. And I think that the cool thing about SaaS is that now I think I know a lot about SaaS sales processes. What I don't know, of course, is a lot about how to grow the next stage. Like, you know, a SaaS company is so different when you close your first 5K MRR to going from 5K to 100K MRR to going from 100K MRR to a million MRR. I mean, that's like, those are not the same companies. And I think that's one of the amazing things too. It's 
it's a machine that you have to trim and build. And I'm learning so much every day that it, like, sometimes it hurts. Trust me, I'm 40 and I'm still learning every day. <laughs> so thank you so much, Ampers, for this. It was really amazing. And uh, I will have to invite you once more again, because I believe we could talk for hours about this. It's fascinating. Thank you so much. It was really great talking to you too.